This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Matt Woodley and is part two of our summer series, Growing Together in God's Household. About a year ago, January 5th, 2015, the Arroyo Valley High School girls varsity basketball team set a record. It was a record for the most lopsided defeat in high school basketball history. They beat their crosstown rivals, Bloomington High School girls team, 161 to 2. Now, if you're only familiar with soccer, that would be like 15 to nothing in soccer terms, okay? Um, When he was asked to explain, to justify why he let his team keep going and going and going and why they beat the other team so badly, the coach for Arroyo Valley said, I didn't expect them to be that bad. I think he was trying to be nice. A few years earlier, in 2013, a high school football team, it's American football, in Texas, beat their opponent 91 to nothing. A father from the losing team filed a complaint against the winning team's school district for bullying other kids. The bullying complaint was dismissed, but it's lopsided sports victories like this that have compelled many school districts across the country to adopt what's called a mercy rule. And what is a mercy rule? Well, here's the definition of a mercy rule. A mercy rule, also known as the slaughter rule, that's the less nice form of it, brings a sports event to an early end when one team has a very large and insurmountable lead. In other words, it spares the losing team further humiliation by telling the winning team, would you please stop scoring runs, goals, points, touchdowns, etc., and just give the team a break. Now, I want us to notice, who does the mercy rule benefit? Losers. And not just ordinary losers, but really bad losers. So you know, if you benefit from the mercy rule, you're bad. Your team is bad. And you know that, even when you're seven years old, you know we got the mercy ruled. So there's a verb now. We got mercy ruled. That's the verb form of that. Now, I think this taps into something in our culture. Something about how we feel about mercy. Mercy is something that's nice to give to people, but it's not so nice to receive it. Because again, who gets mercy? Losers. People behind. People trailing. People that need help. So when this kind of view of mercy gets applied to our spiritual life, our life in Christ, this is what it's like. Let's pretend this is a fountain, a drinking fountain, okay? It's about the size of a drinking fountain, and it's flowing with pure stream of mercy. God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And there's a line of mercy, okay? So the really bad people, the people that really need mercy, you can think of your own categories of like, who's really bad? They need to get in the front of the line. And then, as you become a better person, a better Christian, a better follower of Jesus, 
you start moving further back in the line. And so way back there are people like Mother Teresa and saints and people like that. And where are we? Well, we wouldn't want to say we're with Mother Teresa, but we're not as bad as those people, so I'm sort of middle-ish, middle-ish Christian. I'm in the middle of the line. Well, the passage, the first Bible passage that you heard read from a little book in the New Testament called the book of First Timothy, and it's called First Timothy because there's a second Timothy, and it's called Timothy because the Apostle Paul wrote it to a young Christian leader named Timothy who needed some help leading a church or a series of churches in the city of Ephesus. So in this little book, there's a radical concept, and the concept is this. If you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to be close to Jesus, if you really want to be the kind of follower of Jesus that draws other people to Jesus, then go to the front of the line. Not just when you're feeling really bad, but all the time. Live your life at the front of the line. Keep drinking from the fountain. As we're going to see in this passage, there's, there's, there's like a pattern of this. There's like a flow of this. It's like a, a cycle that keeps cycling. And it goes like this. First we realize we are mercy-needing people. Then we become mercy-receiving people. And then as mercy-needy, mercy-receiving people, we become mercy-displaying people. We display God's mercy to other people in our life. Mercy-needing people is where it starts. It starts by getting to the front of the line. Now, most Bible scholars think that 1 Timothy was written at the end of the Apostle Paul's life. So you would think, after following Jesus all these years, he's had time to become a better Christian and move to the back of the line, you know, because that's where the good Christians are. They sort of move to the back of the line. And yet Paul says in verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or I am the greatest I am the worst sinner. And notice Paul doesn't say past tense, I was the worst sinner, but I am the worst of sinners. Now, why did he say that? Well, some people think that Paul was exaggerating. It's just sort of an ancient humble brag. Oh, look at me. I'm bad. I'm really bad. I'm worse than you. That makes me better than you. That kind of thing. Like if being a sinner was an Olympic sport, I'd get the gold medal kind of attitude, you know? Was he exaggerating? I don't think so, because on a couple other occasions in the New Testament, Paul said, I am the least of the apostles. That's exactly how I said it. I'm the least of the apostles. All those great spiritual leaders that are out there, I'm, at the, I'm the least. And then at another point, he said, he called himself a wretched man because he knew ah, the good that I want to do, I just so often I don't do it. And then the, the evil that I don't want to do, sometimes I just I do that. And he said he called himself a wretched man. I, I don't think he was exaggerating. So maybe he was psychologically unhealthy. Maybe he's just got really bad self-esteem, and he's carrying a load of shame, and he needs to get rid of his shame and his low self-esteem. Well, again, I don't think so. Because notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I thank him, Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Christ found me faithful, and he appointed me to his service. And then in verse 16, he says, remember, I was the foremost sinner, but he says, I'm also the foremost example of God's patient love for sinners. So I'm the best at that, too. 
So he doesn't have low self-esteem. He's not carrying around a lot of shame. He's actually got a really healthy self-esteem. Why did he call himself the worst of sinners? Well, I, th I think it's because of this. He knew his own heart better than anybody else's heart. He knew his heart, and he knew what he was capable of, and he knew what he was still capable of. Notice verse 13. He says, he says, <clears throat> Uh, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor of the church, of Christians, and I was an insolent opponent. That phrase, insolent opponent, in the original Greek language is one word. It basically, best way to translate it is, I was a jerk. I was a jerk. I was arrogant. I was pushy. I trampled under, over people to get where I wanted to go. And notice, he did all of these things while he thought he was serving God with his whole heart. He thought he was trying really hard to be a good person. He was trying really hard to, be, to please God. And yet, he said, that's what I was capable of, even when I was trying to serve God. Imagine what my life could have been like if I wasn't trying to serve God, if I was just trying to do evil. Paul said, I know that's in my heart. I know that there are things that I've done and left undone. And I need God's mercy. So he says, everyone needs mercy. But it has to start with me. There was a great story I read a few weeks ago uh, by a lawyer, a lawyer named Brian Stevenson. And Brian Stevenson is an uh, African-American lawyer in Alabama who started something called the Equal Justice Initiative. The Equal Justice Initiative tries to take cases of people who were poorly represented and probably unjustly convicted of a crime who are often in prison for life or on death row. And this Equal Justice Initiative takes their cases. Brian Stevenson wrote a book called Just Mercy. Beautiful title, by the way. And uh, he tells a story in one of his chapters about a guy named Jimmy Dill. And Jimmy Dill was a guy with some pretty profound intellectual disabilities who was uh, accused of murder, was convicted, tried, sentenced to death in the state of Alabama. Um, Brian Stevenson took the case because he believed that the evidence against Jimmy Dill was really flimsy, really shaky at best. And if he would have had proper representation from the beginning, he probably wouldn't be on death row, he probably wouldn't even be in prison. So they took the case and they lost. And Jimmy Dill was sentenced to die. And there was nothing they could do. And the day before he was sentenced, his execution, Jimmy Dill called Brian Stevenson, and he just called to thank him and say, thank you for everything you did, and thank you for trying. And then here's what Jimmy Dill says in a chapter in his book, Just Mercy, appropriately called Broken. He says, when I hung up the phone with Jimmy Dill that night, I had a wet face and a broken heart. I thought myself a fool for having tried to fix situations that were so fatally broken. I worked in a broken system of justice. My clients were broken by mental illness, poverty, and racism. They were torn apart by disease and drugs and alcohol and pride and fear and anger. And the system that I worked with was broken. He said, but after working for the system for 25 years, I understood that I do what I do because I'm broken too. My years of struggling against injustice had finally revealed something to me about myself. It exposed my brokenness. We all share the condition of brokenness. 
I desperately wanted mercy for Jimmy Dill. And I, but I found out the ways in which I have been hurt and have hurt others are different from the ways Jimmy Dill has suffered and caused suffering. But we all share the condition of brokenness. It is very consistent with this passage. Very biblical. Who needs mercy? I do. Who's the worst of the sinners? I am. Because I know my own heart. Who should get in the front of the line? I should. We are mercy-needing people. But we're also mercy-receiving people. Notice what Paul does. So he basically, like, he basically confesses to the world forever, permanently puts in writing, here's my three biggest sins. My three biggest sins. The three biggest ways I've messed up my life and turned against God and hurt other people. He puts it all out there. But then he says, I received mercy. Two times. Verse 13, verse 16. But I received mercy. But I received mercy. And then in 14 he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word overflowed is a really great little Greek word because it's not really found anywhere else. And so most people think that Paul probably made it up. It basically means hyper-poured. Not just poured, but it was hyper-poured on me. That's literally how it's stated, hyper. Poured out all over me. And then he goes on to say this in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is this saying? This ancient saying from the early church. What is this? It is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That saying really came straight from the lips of Jesus. In the gospel, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's where that saying came from, right from the lips of Jesus. You know, that simply is one of the biggest struggles in my life, to believe that saying. I've been following Jesus for 40 years, but almost every day of my life, I struggle in one way or another. Is like, is that really true? Can I really bank on that? Can I really count on that? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? I mean, not just abstract, but me? Is that really true? You know, growing up in my household, uh, my dad had a lot of sayings, a lot of his sayings. Things like, um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And sayings like, life isn't fair, but eventually the brakes will even out. Or one of his favorites was, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Now, those are a little bit of a downer, and I tried to really resist those and argue against those. But in most instances in my life, my dad's been right. You know, when something looks too good to be true, it usually has been. When something looks like a free lunch, it's usually not. There's a catch. But there's one big exception to those sayings, and that is the good news of Jesus. It sounds too good to be true, but it's not. It sounds like a free lunch, but it is free in terms that we can't buy it. I mean, it wasn't free for God. 
He had to pay with the price of his only son, but it's free for us to receive that mercy. Mercy is free. So no wonder Paul says, I'm going straight to the front of the line. I'm going to get me some of that free mercy. I'm going to drink it up. And let me now, this, this line's kind of important, but I'm going to kind of give you two metaphors now, okay? I'm going to change it a little bit. So instead of just thinking of a line like this, think of a line like this, like you're standing on the shore of the ocean. That's the line. There's plenty of room for everybody up there. Everybody can be first in line. Everybody can be the worst of sinners. Everybody can receive that free mercy. There's enough for everyone. So mercy needing, mercy receiving people become mercy displaying people. Notice verse 16. Paul says this, I received mercy for this reason. Why? Why did God hyperpore his mercy on me when I did not deserve it? Why does he pour it on me when I still do not deserve it? Why does God do that? Well, it's for me, but listen to this. It's also so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So two key words there, a display. You have received God's mercy. I have received God's mercy so that Christ can display his mercy through me to the world so that we can be an example of what, oh, look at that. That's what God does with people. God takes sinners. God takes broken people. And he loves them. And he shows his mercy in Jesus Christ. And he dies for their sins. And he gives, puts his spirit within them. And he slowly starts to transform them. They become examples of his mercy to other people. They become like an exhibit, evidence for God's mercy. Now, I've mentioned a few times, I love watching crime shows. I love the courtroom drama. I was talking to my friend Morse Tan, law professor. He says, it doesn't really work that way in the legal system, but I don't care, because this is, I like my fantasy of how it works, and it makes a really good sermon illustration too. So there's always this crime drama, you know, like Law and Order, where it goes something like this. The, somebody will stand up for the defense or the state, and they'll say, Your Honor, and he holds up a plastic bag, you know, with something in it. I would like to present Exhibit 5B. And there's a hush in the courtroom. Because 5B is like a knife with fingerprints on it or phone records, like with highlighted things. Yeah, you actually called this person 20 times a minute before they died. Um, or it's something like that. And it's, the case may have been tanking, but now everything is turning because someone has stood up and announced and produced and displayed for everyone to see Exhibit 5B. Boom. This case is turning the corner. There's evidence the other direction. Now, again, that's probably way over-dramatized of what really happens. I know it is, because Morse told me. But I love to think of that because this is what this passage is saying. If you're a follower of Jesus, you go out in the world, you're exhibit one, you're exhibit two, you're exhibit three, you're exhibit four, 
You're exhibit five. You're exhibit six, seven, eight. You're exhibit nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. You're exhibit 14. You get the point? Every single Christian is an exhibit. You don't have to live in a plastic bag either. You are a living, breathing exhibit, a piece of evidence of God's mercy, of what God can do with a broken sinner. Now, are you always a piece of evidence of perfect Christianity? Hopefully, we're growing to be more like the Mother Teresa's and the saints. But more than anything, what Paul is saying here is we are evidence of God's undeserved mercy that has been poured out upon us freely in spite of our sins. That is, we are evidence of that. So, as you grow as a Christian, maybe this morning you feel like, you know, I'm the kind of Christian I just always need to be at the front of the line. I got problems, I got issues, I have temptations, I have doubts, and it's like, I always feel like I have to be at the front of the line. And I want to be, those, I want to be that kind of Christian. I want to be that kind of good Christian. <clears throat> I don't want to be a worse sinner, front of the line kind of Christian. And you feel like this incredible shame, like your life's a failure, like you're a bad Christian, because you have to be at the front of the line. Well, this passage is saying... That's the best way to be a Christian. Go to the front of the line. There's enough room for all of us at the front of the line. Stand at the ocean of God's mercy and take it in. Go there. Maybe you need to go there this morning and just say, God, I need your mercy. Maybe, you know, you've never opened your heart to Christ. Maybe there's something foreign to you or you've been resisting that or maybe you've been thinking about it and maybe you think, well, if I do that, that means i got to be like the best kind of Christian ever. No, you start at the front of the line. You stay at the front of the line. You can do that. God invites you to receive his mercy. Or maybe you're the kind of Christian that's like, you're sort of middle-ish, and you're like kind of looking around at other, other people. It's like, man, I wish he would go get to the front of the line. I, I would be such a better person. My life would be so much better if they would go to the front of the line. And maybe your whole experience of Jesus has been hampered and stymied because you're waiting for somebody else to go get God's mercy. And so you see all these people that are hypocrites, all these people that are not living the Christian life. And maybe this morning, through God's word, through his spirit, he will point at you and say, well, what about you? Don't worry about him or her or them or where they are in line or compare yourself to him or her or them. Just look to Christ. Look to the beauty of his holiness. Look to him. Open your heart to him and say, I want to receive your mercy. I need your mercy. Probably know the old African-American hymn, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not the preacher, it's not the deacon, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's not my mother, it's not my father, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I think that's what Paul's saying in this passage. 
And he begins with himself. He tells his own testimony. And I think he invites us to tell our testimony, hoping that our testimony will be something like, I'm going to tell myself this morning I need to go to the front of the line. I'm going to tell Jesus this morning, I want to meet you, Jesus, at the front of the line. I'm going to tell people around me in my life, I'm going to meet you at the front of the line. And I'm going to tell every broken sinner I meet just like me, come meet me at the front of the line. There's mercy for all of us. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.